Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them, in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a, da- as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give you the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all round the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position round the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. 
When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bethshitta towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Mahola near Tabith. Israelites near Naphtali, Asher, and all the Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Bethbarah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of Jordan as far as Bethbarah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They called Oreb, they, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. This is God's word. Evening, everyone. My name's Scott. Uh, I'm the student minister uh, here. It's a real pleasure uh, to be with you uh, this evening. Do keep um, Judges uh, 6 and 7 open. We'll mainly be in 6 for the first bit and a little bit in 7 a bit later on. Let me pray uh, as we come to God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in our weakness, we so need you to speak to us. Father, we praise you that you have spoken to us in the words of of Scripture. Father, as we look at them now, would we be strengthened? Would we be encouraged? Would we be equipped to live lives that bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray? Amen. We're, uh, we're looking at another judge this evening, uh, Gideon. wonder as, um, if you've been here for the, the rest of the series in Judges, whether you've um, thought that the judges are a bit like the all-action heroes uh, of the Bible. Um, they're a bit like uh, uh, Marvel superhero characters, aren't they? We had small but mighty Ehud. Uh, we had butt-kicking Deborah. Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll have alpha male extraordinaire uh, Samson. Uh, and this evening, Gideon. We're all a bit uh, like the Marvel superhero characters. I, I'm not pretending to be uh, a big Marvel expert. Um, but I think, uh, from, from the few that I've seen, I think the films go something a bit like this. Um, you, you have a powerful but flawed superhero who, through some sort of process, overcomes their inner turmoil, their inner doubt. Um, it's usually with the help of another superhero or their mother, or billions of dollars. <laughs> and they overcome that and, 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 and find the inner strength that was always there within them, uh, the inner goodness and, uh, and ability to overcome evil. Well, I wonder if in all this uh, talk of great judges uh, in the Bible, great leaders of God's people, all the talk of the, the great salvation that God brought about through them, I wonder if in comparison uh, you're left feeling a bit, well, just, just a bit ordinary, a bit normal, uh, a bit weak. I guess if, the, if they were holding auditions next week for, I don't know, the new Captain America or the new Catwoman, uh, I'm not sure how many of us would make the short list. Never mind saving the world, uh, most of us struggle day to day with our life admin. Well, if we transfer that into our, into our Christian lives, then often those same feelings of ordinariness, uh, of weakness, are there too. Maybe, you don't, you, maybe you're not the, the bold evangelist who's had 15 conversations 
uh, with, with colleagues in the office before coffee break. Uh, maybe you're not the sort of social hub of your DG group. Maybe you can just about uh, cling on to faith uh, week by week. Maybe you're constantly worried that, that, that someone's going to find you out, uh, that, that you just feel ordinary and weak so much of the time. Well, then we come to the story of Gideon, Judges 6, 7, and 8. And we're reminded that even the most ordinary of people, even the very weakest of us, can be taken and used by God for his extraordinary salvation purposes. And it is precisely because we are ordinary and weak that God can use us. And that is to his praise and glory. That's how God does things, isn't it? That's how he operates. And he uses weak things in this world to shame the strong. He uses foolish things to shame the wise. He uses the utter weakness of a crucified savior to do the most extraordinary thing in the whole universe, bringing a sinner from death to life. So as we come to uh, the story of Gideon uh, this evening, if you feel uh, very ordinary and weak, I want us to be encouraged that God uses the ordinary and the weak things to bring about his salvation plans. Not so that we can live as heroes of our own little universes, but so that we might live obedient and God-glorifying lives. Uh, so as we, as we go through um, the passage this evening, there's lots of stuff we won't be able to uh, stop and, uh, and take time to think about, but we will see three, three big things. Uh, the points are on your uh, service sheet if you find that helpful. We'll see, firstly, that Israel's weakness is met with God's grace, that Gideon's weakness is overcome by the Spirit's power, and that the army's weakness is used to display God's strength. three areas of weakness in which God is glorified. Firstly then, um, Israel's weakness is met with God's grace. Uh, chapter six, uh, the beginning of chapter six. See, the pattern that we've seen again and again in the book of Judges is happening once again here. See, the Israelites, they'd had a period of peace uh, with Deborah, but now once she's gone, uh, once again, verse one, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so for seven years, God gives them uh, into the hands of the Midianites. And this little section is, is the longest bit we get in the whole book of Judges that describes the oppression faced by God's people. Um, it, it's not great, is it? For seven years, they had been raided and ruined and ravaged. Just imagine them each year working hard uh, to take what little uh, seed was left planting it in the ground, cultivating it, hoping that this year would be the year that they would get to harvest, only for the Midianites to raid the land, ruin the crops, and leave them with nothing, taking all the livestock like a swarm of locusts, uh, sweeping everything away. And it was such a regular occurrence uh, that the Israelites have, have built these permanent bolt holes in the mountains, uh, sort of bunkers in the garden, somewhere that they can run to year after year when it happens. 
devastating for them. But finally, after seven years of endless oppression, fleeing to the mountains, scraping enough, just about enough to get by each year, finally in verse six, Midian so oppressed the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. They cry out for help, but but God's initial response uh, isn't what they wanted. I guess they're probably looking for a a, a quick fix, a a solution uh, to the problem. Instead, God sends them a prophet, someone who will explain to them why it is uh, that they are suffering in this way. What does he say, verse eight? This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you lived. But you have not listened to me. God has been so gracious to them. He's given them a simple command, do not worship other gods, and yet they have not listened. Their sin is an incredibly simple one, isn't it? They have not listened to what God said. And so what you expect as you get that damning um, indictment of their behavior is judgment, it doesn't seem that the people repent. They just, want, they just want the problem fixed. God would be perfectly within his rights uh, to leave them to it, to leave them in the hands of the Midianites forevermore. But where we expect judgment, God comes to his people. See the, the change in tone all of a sudden in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah. See, God shows undeserved kindness in coming to the very people who have rejected him. That is how God always works, isn't it? And not waiting for us to sort ourselves out uh, before he comes, but stepping in, always taking the initiative uh, to save. Makes us think of, of Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God meets our sinful weakness with grace, just as Israel's sinful weakness was met with grace. Israel was weak, but God is gracious to them. Secondly then, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, Gideon's weakness is overcome by the Spirit's power. So having zoomed out and saw the the picture of Israel as a whole, we now zoom in uh, on the hero of the hour, Gideon. Uh, If this were a a Marvel film, I guess this would be the sort of origins uh, story. How did this great leader of God uh, come uh, to to be such a great hero? Except as we sort of read through, he doesn't really match our expectations of what a hero should be like. We find him hiding in a wine press, sort of little brick building. He's threshing wheat, what little wheat he has left uh, to feed his family, desperately hoping not to be found. He's hiding away. 
And yet look what the angel of the Lord says to him. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon doesn't look much like a mighty warrior and hiding away out of sight. But Gideon is is less surprised by his little nickname and and much more surprised at, at the claim that the Lord is with him. Or does he say, pardon me, my Lord, very polite, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. It's a a fair point, isn't it? It's well made, Gideon. But again, the Lord's response is surprising. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? This passage seems to um, uh, switch between saying the person that, that Gideon is speaking to is the angel of the Lord and the Lord it doesn't, doesn't seem to matter particularly um, in, the, in the narrator's mind. The two are interchangeable. But it's got personal, hasn't it? Gideon's strength may not be much, but God is calling him to be part of his salvation plan. Gideon is, is, is still pretty um, unsure, I guess not unsurprisingly. Pardon me, my Lord, still nice and polite. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. You can, you can easily imagine what he's thinking, can't you? you? You've made some mistake here, Lord. Uh, you've got the wrong man. I'm just ordinary, weak, normal Gideon. If you're looking for the hero, you'll want um, Benjamin across the road. Um, he, was, he was captain of the rugby team. He can bench press 300 kilos, no problem. You want, you want Esther. She's always been top of the class. She's the one everyone goes to. Everyone loves her. They'll follow her. Except God doesn't seem interested in Gideon's CV or how he compares with, with everyone else around him. You know, none of that matters to God. What matters is that the Lord is with him. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. See, God has chosen Gideon to rescue his people. And because God will be with Gideon, the victory is guaranteed. I will be with you. You will strike down all the Midianites. It'd be a little uh, little bit like getting a phone call from, uh, from Roger Federer saying, um, hi there, I would like you to be my new doubles partner. Now, I don't know how Roger Federer's got your number. Um, I don't know wh- uh, whether you play tennis or not. But if you got that call, I guess you'd think, I mean, no matter how bad I am at tennis, if I've got Roger Federer beside me, well, I'm, I'm going to win some tennis matches. I mean, it may just be better to get off court altogether and just let him play against the two opponents. But, but you're going to win some with him by your side. Well, how much more certain is Gideon's victory because he has God with him? And we get this little little story before we get to the main uh, rescue. 
Uh, God, God tells Gideon to tear down his father's altars to false gods and in its place to build a true altar uh, to the Lord. Uh, look down again at verse, where are we? Chapter six, verse. We've done that. There we go, 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offering the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took his ten, 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. I wonder what we, um, what we make of that. Uh, Gideon, the great hero, is afraid. He just met with the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself. Shouldn't he have more faith than that? Shouldn't he be bold? Is Gideon wrong uh, to do it at night? Um, should he have uh, just boldly gone up in the middle of the day and chopped it down? Well, maybe, but um, two things in, in Gideon's favor. God doesn't specify when he needs to do it. And God doesn't rebuke him uh, after he does it at night. See, the key thing here is that, is that Gideon does it. He does what the Lord told him. See, when it comes to following God, obedience is essential. Heroism is optional. Obedience is essential. Heroism is optional. God doesn't need us to stop being afraid before he can use us. You don't need to be fearless uh, before you share the gospel uh, with a colleague at work. You just need to be obedient. God has commanded us to go and share the good news, even when we're nervous and scared to do so. Our job, just like Gideon's, is to hear what God says to us and to be obedient to him. See, Gideon may be weak, he may be afraid, but he does obey. And so he is the man to save God's people. Because they're threatened again, aren't they? Verse 33, look down again, verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other Eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the Valley of Jezreel. Here we go again. History repeating itself. Uh, the Midianites and friends uh, ganging up on Israel, coming to sweep through the land as they have done for seven years. Except this time it's different. Why is it different? Well, verse 34. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. See, Gideon, weak Gideon, is empowered by God's Spirit to do the Lord's will. The Spirit's power is joined to human weakness so that the Spirit will use weak Gideon to achieve his amazing purposes. See, the, the empowering of, of the Holy Spirit on Gideon, it doesn't make Gideon invincible. It doesn't make him without flaw. Um, we didn't have it read, but if you read the end of Gideon's story, chapter eight, you'll see he makes some mistakes in leadership. He's far from perfect. 
But in the power of the Spirit, God will use Gideon to save his people. The Spirit um, doesn't remove all of Gideon's fear and uncertainty. Um, It's not some magic pill. And we see the same level of uncertainty in Gideon at the end of chapter 6, the strange test with the wool fleece. Uh, Later in chapter 7, the dream that Gideon overhears, he's only there hearing it because he was afraid and God told him to go. Both of those are, are, are sent to strengthen Gideon in his uncertainty. But see, Gideon has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so his weakness is no obstacle. So as we see that, uh, you and I, we, we don't need to be heroes of our own stories. Um, the position of hero in our lives has already been filled, and it's not by you and I. See, we don't, we don't need to match up to some um, standard of skill or charisma or strength to be useful to God. If you are in Christ this evening, then God saved you while you were still a sinner. If you're a Christian here this evening, God's spirit lives in you. Not so that all your problems suddenly disappear. Not so that you'll always be strong. Not so that you can play the hero. But so that he might use your weakness to display his glory. That will often look very ordinary and normal and weak. As the Spirit does his work in us, it it will look like like a Christian clinging to faith in the midst of mental health struggles when you can barely get out the door and yet you cling to faith in Christ. It will look like the quiet, persistent uh, gospel witness to friends and colleagues. Probably nothing showy, just persistent and faithful witness. It is in our weakness that the Spirit works in and through us. Gideon's weakness is overcome by the Spirit's power. So we might think now that Israel have cried out to the Lord in their weakness, now that Gideon has been empowered by the Spirit, well, maybe now um, all of God's people will rally round. Uh, They'll pull themselves together and they'll be able to save themselves. Well, it's not what happens, is it? Our, Our third and final point, we'll see that in the army's weakness, the army's weakness is used to display God's strength. We're here into chapter seven. Chapter seven is the actual story. Now, now Gideon has been commissioned. Is the actual story of how uh, God uses Gideon to rescue his people. And verse two, I think, is the key to understanding what, what is going on here. Verse two of chapter seven. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Basically, God says, your army is too big. If I gave you the victory now, well, you'd quickly turn it into an excuse to puff yourself up. Aren't we great? I mean, what a result we have affected. 
I knew that we could do this if we just believed in ourselves enough, if we just gathered around together, if we pooled our resources, we could do it, if we got our tactics spot on. But God wants everyone to know here that, that the victory is his. He planned it, he achieved it, and he will get the glory for it. And so God, in, in two stages, whittles down the army of 32,000 to just 300. If, you, uh, if you're a fan of Shakespeare, you'll know that uh, Henry, Henry V, Battle of Agincourt, 1415, um, is, is the battle of uh, once more into the breach, dear friends, fame. Well, at that battle, there were um, potentially as few as 6,000 English, English soldiers um, up against 30,000 French troops including 10,000 uh, pretty heavily armed uh, knights. And yet, in the end, it was a glorious against-the-odds victory uh, for the English. Even as an Irishman, I can tip my hat to that one. <laughs> against all the odds, there was victory. Maybe the Israelites um, can pull off uh, something similar. Except here, this isn't just against the odds. This isn't just slightly outnumbered. This is utter madness, isn't it? To slash your army down by 99% um, is, a, is an utterly ridiculous tactical decision. You don't need to be a general to know that. No army commander in the history of any war anywhere has ever done anything like it. It is pure foolishness. I guess you can see that, you know, maybe uh, you, you get your elite unit uh, to pull off some sort of covert operation uh, to weaken the enemy. But you don't send the rest of the army home. You keep them there as a backup. But this, this puny army of, of just 300 is all that God needs to secure the victory. Look down at verse 7. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. God promises, promises victory through the weakness of, of 300 against the might of the Midianites that no one could count. An army so numerous that they were like locusts in the valley. But when God has promised, he delivers. The rest of the chapter shows us how, doesn't it? In, in what I reckon must be the best passage ever to teach in Sunday school. Um, I mean, just imagine the reenactment. This is the one where you get to smash something, you get to blow trumpets really loudly, and then shout, and then slay some Midianites. I don't know how you do that in Sunday school, but... Um, uh, no lesson is ever going to top that, ever. They'll be talking about that one for, for a good while. But the point is, the Lord wins the victory through the weakness of, of an army of 300. 300 men led by a, a fearful and uncertain leader. But he uses that to rescue an oppressed and sinful people. Just as, as centuries later, God would use some Galilean fishermen 
and tax collectors, proclaiming a message of a crucified leader to win people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people who were heading for hell and winning them for heaven. See, Christ crucified will always seem weak and foolish in the eyes of the world, like sending away 99% of your army. What fool would trust in a leader who dies on a cross? And yet that weakness is God's power for salvation. So you may feel very weak and ordinary. You may feel just like the most normal of normal Christians, but you have a savior who died in weakness, but was raised in glory. You have a spirit who lives in you, who takes and uses your weakness to do extraordinary things. What an amazing salvation we have if you're trusting in Christ this evening. What an amazing salvation. What an amazing God. Shall we pray together? Father, we praise you that in weakness you, you brought about a mighty salvation for your people. Father, you did that through Gideon. You did it most fully and finally through the Lord Jesus as he hung on that cross. Weak and foolish in the eyes of the world and yet powerful to save. Father, in our weakness, would we trust in Christ? Would we look to him? Would we stop comparing ourselves to others? Would we stop trying to be the hero and instead be obedient to what you have called us to be? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.